in the Bible. And one of the most admired people in the Bible is, of course, Gideon, this great warrior chosen by God to free his people from a, a terrible enemy, an enemy that had set out to enslave Israel, to annihilate them. And as a bit of a background to it, let's remember this is very early on in the history of Israel. You find these accounts of them in, in the book of Judges. And they're known as the dark ages of Israel. And they certainly were that. They were constantly under attack by the peoples that they failed to drive out under Joshua. They just stopped instead of kept going the way they were supposed to. Sometimes making alliances when they were supposed to have wiped out this sinful people. And many people wonder why would God order for these tribes to be wiped out? Well, they practiced as part of their religion, things that are unspeakable, that are not fit to go from our mouths. They were disgusting. So even though the civilization that they were replacing was far higher on the civilization list, their morality was just in the gutter. It was low. It was lower than the low. It was disgraceful. And this is what the people of Israel faced. And they were indeed, they were tempted by it as well. And many of them emulated what was going on, much to their own destruction. Well, people didn't think that poor Gideon would be strong enough to take on the people that wanted to wipe them out. But God can use the weak things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 29, we read, God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. All glory is to be to God and not to ourselves. It's not about self-glorification. Remember, the Bible is his story. Over in Judges 6, verses 12 and 14, we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Imagine an angel appearing before you and saying that to you, and you're not feeling like a mighty man of valor. You're feeling what you want to do is to run home, climb into bed, pull the, 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 the bedclothes over your head and just disappear. But God's got a plan. You've got to do it. Even though he might not have believed in himself much, the Lord did, calling him a mighty man of valor. He could see what he could become if only he would trust in God, if only he would forsake all of his self-doubt, all of the worry, cast all his cares upon God, and just go with him. In verse 14 we read, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Have not I sent thee? Are these not five words that should embolden us in our journey as Christians? Whatever opposition we may face in this world, remember those words. Have not I sent thee? That should give us courage. When we frail as we are, full of worry and self-doubt, turn to God. And realize that he has sent us. We should have the strength to follow after him and be like Gideon. And the Lord said unto Gideon in Judges 7 verse 2, The people that are with thee are far too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. The people that are with thee are far too many 
for me to give the Midianites into thy hands. So you see, I'm getting a bit ahead of the account here, but Gideon had gathered himself a big army of Israelites to go out and fight the Midianites. But if that army was so big and the Midianites so small, or so small they would not give glory to God for the great victory. They would give the glory to themselves. But they were being taught a lesson to lean upon the God of their fathers. The strength of weakness leaning upon God and the weakness of human strength, this is a paradox. This is the spiritual truth of which Gideon's life is the perfect illustration. Hiding behind his wine press and seeking by stealth to thresh a little weed for his family without being discovered by the Midianites who were occupying their land, the angel of the Lord suddenly appears to, right before him with the startling greeting, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valour. Can you imagine that happening? Well, Gideon felt anything but a mighty man of valour. And he must, have, he must have looked it too as he began to apologise and explain to the angel of the, the helplessness and the distress of his people. When the answer came as the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy, my, thy might, and thou shalt save Israel, have not I sent thee. What a change that must have brought about. You see, Gideon would then understand that it was not his might or valour, but the Lord's that would save his country. It was the strength of faith, which is always the strength of weakness, because it is the strength of God. Our weakness, his strength, we lean upon him. And the, the Hebrew idea of leaning upon God comes from the, a, a wonderful visual image. And Hebrew is a very visual language. They tend to think in these, these illustrations, these, these pictures. And the picture of leaning on God is to, it's been described as leaning upon your own spear. Not falling upon it, but just you're holding your spear. Instead of fighting with it, just lean upon it, because God's going to do the fighting for you. God's got this. God has got this, no matter what it might be. And that should fill our hearts with hope and strength and praise for the Lord our God. And this is always the story of grace and the secret of the supernatural power that's so emboldened us that comes from God. It is ever a paradox to the natural mind, though. When I am weak, then am I strong. But that is the proper inscription of every victorious saint. Lean upon the everlasting arms, like in that beautiful song. Lean upon God. And God comes to the sinner. And by a word of sovereign grace, pronounces him forgiven. And he obeys the gospel of Christ. And that word makes him what it declares. He comes to the sinful soul and says, Now ye are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. You have God's guarantee that if you obey what he commands, then you too shall be saved from whatever enemy you're facing, no matter how large it might be, no matter what the oppressor is. In the Bible we see that God comes to the struggling Jacob and by a word transforms him into the conquering Israel. He comes to the stormy and, and there he henceforth finds the gentle John rising above all human probabilities and natural causes. Grace speaks and it is done and faith counts the things that are not as, as, though, as though they were. And Gideon, this trembling fugitive from his foes, being hunted in his own homeland by an enemy that would love to do nothing more than torture him to death and take great pleasure in doing it. 
Here he stands in the very next hour in the strength of God, the mighty victor over his mighty foes. But next we see this principle in the test of Gideon's faith. Here he is no longer the natural man full of fear. Here he is the man of faith who has laid his fears, his strength, all upon God. Oh, but how weak his faith is. And how slowly it develops into maturity and confidence. First, in the account that we read in the book of Judges, he asked for a sign from his supernatural visitor, as if the sign wasn't enough. I don't know about you, but if an angel of God appeared before me, or the angel of the Lord appeared before me and said, do something, I think, I think that's enough of a sign. This is, this is pretty good. Things are going my way. But here, in his weakness of faith, he's asking for a sign that he may know for a certainty that it is the Lord, that it is the Lord's will. And so he prepares an offering and brings it to the angel. And as he presents the kid, the, the young goat, and unleavened cakes, the staff in the angel's hand touches the offering, and it is consumed in a moment in flames of fire. But no sooner has Gideon's test been granted then he breaks down with the cry of fear. In Judges chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, he says, Alas, O Lord God, because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon is reassured by the comforting message of the Lord. He says, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. And so he builds an altar unto the God of peace and goes forth to take his rightful place. His first step of faith and obedience to God. And this begins at his own home. He's not going out immediately into battle, rushing into the foe. This begins at his own home, in his own father's house. For there there are altars built to Baal, the god of the Canaanites. And here the worship of these false gods of the Canaanites is carried on beneath his own roof. What's the point of fighting for Israel's freedom from the Midianites if they're still going to be enslaved to these false gods? To the spiritual darkness that is behind them, crushing them, blinding them. The people don't just need to be liberated physically, they need to be liberated spiritually. And these false gods need to be kicked out. So God's first command is to build an altar unto Jehovah and offer upon his father offer it his father's bullock in sacrifice to the God of Israel. And then tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the grove. Tear it down, destroy it. You see, it starts in his own home. He has to clean it up, make it right with God before he can set out to liberate Israel. And still we see the timid man and the trembling faith even in his obedience. We are imperfect. We know the promises of God and we know God will not forsake us. God is true to his promises. And yet still we tremble. Yet still we are lacking in faith. You know, when we worry about what God has promised us, we're sinning because we're doubting what God has said. Let's not sin. Let's not doubt what God has said. God is not a liar. We do not need to think he's going to do us a bad turn or, or he's not a con man. 
Now still we see here this timid man and the trembling faith, even when he has finally decided to obey Almighty God. So he takes a few men and stealthily by night he secretly does what he was commanded. And in the morning his neighbors look with astonishment and anger upon the wreck of their shrine and the evidences of Gideon's bold rebellion. You can imagine their faces as they came out and they seen it. The altar's destroyed. The God has been destroyed. Never stopping to think, yes, their God has been destroyed. He's some God who can be destroyed, isn't he? Well, they soon find out who the guilty party is. And their cries are loud and unanimous that he shall die. But Joash, the father of Gideon, tactfully turns aside the anger of the people by suggesting that if Baal is a true God, he ought to kill Gideon himself and should have been able to defend himself against the insult offered to his shrine. The father's brave attitude turns the tide and God sustains his obedient child as he ever will the heart that dares to trust in him. And that comes down to the wire. Are we going to trust in God with all of our heart? And the Bible heart is really talking about the intellect. It's talking about the mind. Are we going to make up our minds intellectually that we're actually going to trust God that he is able to take care of us? We must do. And no sooner has Gideon begun this grave task that the devil also begins to stir up his forces and his resources, his followers. The Amalekites and the Midianites assemble with a mighty army of 135,000 men and pitch their camp in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of God comes upon Gideon and he blows a mighty trumpet. And the people of the city and his family gather around the standard. And then from the tribes of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, the volunteers pour in until Gideon stands at the head of an army of 30,000 men. Now 30,000 men against 135,000, that's still quite an uphill battle. And if 30,000 men can defeat 135,000 men, that in itself is an incredible victory. But it's too many men. It's too many to face it. If they fight with that number, and if they win with that number, will they not be proud of themselves? Forgetting about God? No, the hand of God is among them. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Not just the sword of Gideon. Again here we see his faith begin to falter. And once more he comes to Jehovah for a reassuring word or a sign. And God is very gentle with this trembling servant. He sees the true purpose of obedience and he gives him time to be sure. He always does. When God commands us to take any important step, he will always grant us all the certainty and all the strength that we need. So Gideon asks for a sign suggested by his simple pastoral life. Namely, that the fleece upon the floor of the barn should be filled with dew while all around is dry. And sure enough, 
the very next morning, he wrings a bowl of water from the soaking fleece, while not a dewdrop is to be seen on flower or blade of grass. What wonderful signs God has given him to embolden him. But yet still Gideon shrinks from going forward. And once more asks a sign from God, namely that the token of last night shall be reversed, and that the fleece shall be dry the next morning, while all the ground and the grass shall be soaked with dew. Once again God answers his request and grants the asked for sign. There was one good thing about Gideon's second request. He was willing to have his sign turned upside down. Sometimes when we are asking guidance, we want it all one way. And this is usually the reason why we are so oft misguided. We are biased in our preference. I know of one lady who said, well, if the Lord wants me to go to, say, if, she wants me, if he wants me to go to Pensacola, I'm going to throw the umbrella in the air, and if it ends facing that direction, then I'll go to Pensacola. And it landed facing Tennessee, or, or Tallahassee. So she picked the umbrella up again and threw it again, best of three. It doesn't really work like that. But some people think it does. We are to trust in God, in God's decisions, in God's way, in all ways. But we want to do always in our fleece. And we are not so willing that it shall be dry. But Gideon's will was so fully surrendered to God that he was ready to take his answer either way and so God could teach him. And we must be too. Our hearts must be surrendered to God fully or we're missing out. We're holding a bit of it back, a bit of our own self-governance over our own hearts. But Jesus must be upon the throne of our hearts. Oh, we are failing. We are missing the mark. And we're missing the joy of the Christian life. You see, he was willing that God could teach him. He wasn't trying to second-guess God. He wasn't trying to find any wiggle room. He just wanted to be sure. But not by these signs does God promise now to direct his children. For he has given us his holy word, which is the language of the Holy Spirit, to show us the way that we ought to go. And we should be very careful in resorting to the lot or by, by opening our Bibles at random and then just putting our finger down as many people do because this is nothing but a presumptuous and superstitious dependence upon signs and portents which leads so many astray taking the bible out of context has been the ruin of many a man and many a woman and certainly would be the ruin of many a nation the word of God must be taken and studied in its wholeness for all that it's worth and always within its context. Understanding that it can only mean what it meant to the people back then that it was written to. When we start reading the modern world into it, lo and behold, we've got UFOs in the book of Revelation, we've got robotic android antichrists walking around the place and all manner of strange things which are great on Star Trek but not so great in your religious journey with God. In the Holy Scriptures, we have a standard of right and wrong that is not movable. 
And this standard of right and wrong is something upon which we can always depend for the general principles, at least the principles which should direct our actions. And in the voice of the Holy Spirit, which is the word of God itself, we should always have the special guidance which we need in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. But there are certain conditions which we must always observe. If you open your Bibles to Psalm 25 and verse 9, we will see the Bible says that the meek will he guide in judgment. Do not confuse meekness with weakness. Those who are meek are, wi- are, are willing to have their heart conformed to the heart of God, to his will, to his mind. The yielded and willing heart will find his way, will find God's way. And the selfish, the selfish will, the selfish heart that chooses its own way and then comes to God will try and have him endorse it but will very likely go away lacking and astray. In the New Testament, we read about how the apostles, this small band of brothers, went out and faced the might of the Roman Empire and they did not hold back. They had seen the testimony of the Lord. Like modern Gideons, they went out into the battle. The apostles gathered from combining all of the leadings in a given case, that God was directing them at, this, at whatever important crisis was coming along. And so the wise man will always bring to every question, not the general principles of the Holy Scripture, but all the principles of the Holy Scriptures. The last thing he will do is turn to his own strength, for there he will fail. And like Gideon and the lessons we can learn from Gideon, we must lean upon him with all our heart and all our strength. With deliberate consideration of what God has taught us. And trusting in his providence. And then they will hold all things humbly before the Lord in prayer. And suspend all action until it becomes an absolute conviction. And then and then alone should he go forth with certainty and rest to follow the path that has been indicated and leave the results with God, to trust in him. Next, we see the principle of our text illustrated in the selection of Gideon's men. It was a good thing for Gideon that he was weak and timid. See, he was weak and timid enough to wait at every point for God's next word. He wasn't just going to run into the battle. He wasn't going to say, I have 30,000 men here. Let's attack during the night. Take them by surprise. Let's defeat them. And all glory to us. No, that wasn't to be, that was never to be the way. It is quite possible for us to receive a command from the Lord in the Bible and then go forward blindly to obey it and really find ourselves at last, in some measure at least, out of God's order even in seeking to obey him, because we did not stop and hearken all along the way for his further orders. How many times did the apostles, did the followers of Christ, seek to crown him king there and then? But that was not the time. When the time came, it was glorious. Sometimes it was tragic, but it was always in God's appointed time. 
My friends, we have not only a manual of instructions in the Bible, so we don't need to have signs like Gideon, but we have a living Lord and a leader in heaven to help us carry out our instructions. Let us walk closely with him, never far from him, never losing sight of him. Because outside of Christ, there is no hope. We must strive to obey him in every single manner. And then the enemy, no matter how large they might be, will fall away in defeat and all glory be to God. For while one breath, while with one breath he says, observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. In the other he says, lo, I am with you through all the days, even unto the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. This is a mistake the church has often made. She has taken a set of doctrines and rules and bound them up in a volumes of instructions, principles and rules, creed books, confessions, doctrinal principles, and then gone forth to carry them out herself, doing the exact same thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did that were condemned by Christ. We have no hesitation in saying that even the Bible without the Holy Spirit involved in its creation is not a sufficient guide for the church or for the Christian. You see, if the Bible is just a mere man-made thing, no matter how good it might be, it would lead us to nowhere. But the Bible is unlike any other collection of books ever written. It is the very Word of God. It is the Holy Spirit language among us. What is bound upon us? is written in the bound book of the Holy Bible. Nothing added and nothing removed. Let us understand that this is our sign. And it is a glorious one. And so Gideon waits and hearkens. Yet another message comes. Judges 7.2 says, The people that are with thee are too many. And God begins to sift them, you see. And so Gideon beholds this splendid army in front of him, melting away like snow upon the mountains, until two out of every three have gone back to the bidding of his fears. So God still tests us and lets us retire from the tasks for which he knows we are inadequate. But you may think that God has led you to abandon that work for him. No. God lets you abandon it, because you saw that you were afraid and would have failed. But had you dared more, you might not. You might have had more. But even the 10,000 that are left are still too many. And so there is a second test, and God again lets them test themselves. And how solemn it is to know that every step we take, we are weighing our own lives and writing our own record and fixing our own place of service and reward. No matter what we might go through life, no matter what trial, it is building us. We are being, as Brother John so well described it, forged like a sword upon the altar. And the more beats that sword gets, the more it is shaped, the stronger and the sharper it becomes. You see, a sword is not just an iron bar that's been shaped to, to cut per people. A sword is specially made according to a rule actually called the golden rule. 
It's a finely balanced weapon made according to scientific principles. The sword must be soft on the inside or it will shatter if it's too strong. It must be sharp and be able to retain its edge. If it doesn't, it will, it will fracture and fall away. It will break. A great deal of thought goes into it. A great deal of work goes into the creation of it. Into the forging of it. So it is a weapon that is fit for use. Fit for the purpose that it has been designed for. And this we see happening with Gideon. He's been forged. And the same is true of our own lives. Nobody likes going through hard times. Or difficult trials. But at the other end... We're stronger for it. We're better for it. And we're of more use to the Lord and his kingdom because of it. So Gideon brings them up to the water brook. And simply watches them while they drink. For this is their test. The most of them intend only upon drinking and forgetting all about the foe. Kneel down at the river brink. And drink and drink until they are satisfied. Oblivious of all else. And never dreaming of the enemy who may be lurking right across the stream and might fall upon them, ready to spring upon them at any unexpected moment. These men will not do for God's work, and so he puts them all aside. But there are a few, only 300. Remember, he had an army of 30,000 against 135,000. It has been whittled down by the will of God. It has been forged into an army of 300 that are fit for the purpose. And they go down to the water's edge in a very different fashion. With eyes alert, they look around and in every direction to guard against possible surprise. And then they just stoop down and lap up the water with their hands, mouthful by mouthful at the water's edge watching between every mouthful for any possible surprise or assault, ready at a moment's notice to stand armed and equipped for the battle. They're ready for the fight, aware that the enemy is out to get them. Ah, oh, these men are God's men. And Gideon sets them aside while the others go home with the timid ones, unfit to be used for God in his commission. How solemn, how true all this is for you and for me. God is always bringing us down to the valley of decision, to the testing place of life. He gives you some blessing, some, some, some drink from the fountain of love and prosperity, and he watches to see how you will drink. And you become absorbed in your blessing. And you get right down like them to drink and drink and forget everything else. You will notice the times that were worst in the history of Israel and the Bible at the times when they were most prosperous. Not because there's anything wrong with being blessed by God, not at all. But because they misused those blessings. They became proud of themselves and they put their confidence in the things that they owned instead of the one who had blessed them with those things. You show where your heart is at those times. And God cannot trust you in his enterprises if the things that he gives you are the things you place your trust in instead of him. So perhaps he gives you money and immediately you become absorbed in business or pleasure 
and you are not quite ready at God's call for the sudden emergency or the subtle opportunity. Perhaps you might give your money and you're not ready to spend it wisely. How many have we learned that have won a great amount of money while gambling, which they shouldn't have been doing, but gambling, and they went down, they bought themselves a brand new, beautiful, beautiful car, really fast, fast car. I'm not looking at you. <laughs> Someone like poor James Dean, remember that actor? He got a bit of money, he bought himself a wonderful car, and then sadly he brought his young life to an unnecessary end. We must be careful in our lives. Perhaps he'll give you some friend. And that that friend becomes more to you and means more to you than Christ. Or the call of duty to Christ. And he has to set you aside, not from heaven perhaps, but, but from his highest will. You're not reaching your fullest potential. There are times in our lives when we just need to cast ourselves upon God into his hands, into his mercy and trust in him that no matter how deep or how low the valley gets at the other end of it there is glory because brethren what we leave in this life is everything everything is left behind I have not once seen a gravestone where someone wrote I wish I'd spent more time at the office but I tell you what they do regret if they're burning in hell they regret not getting right with God and they regret not doing what God has told them to do we think it is hard to love our enemies. Let me tell you, I grew up with a lot of enemies. When the peace came along, we finally started to talk, and a lot of them became my friends. Some of them refused to be my friends, and you know what hurt? What hurt was because they didn't want to be my friend. And I really wanted to get right with them. I really wanted to forge a relationship with them, but it wasn't going to work. But that's not upon us. The hardest thing of loving your enemy is when they just will not love you back or be your friend. But you know you've done the right thing in the sight of God. I have held the hands of people who have slipped from this world into the next. And I have seen all that they have worked for, everything just be left behind. But if they're right with God and you have every confidence that they are with the Lord in heaven, then they have a greater treasure than any that they have left behind. And that is the greatest inheritance you can give to your children. For them to have confidence that you are with the Lord in heaven. And for that you strive with all your heart and soul, all your strength. You fight for it. You make sure you're right with God according to his will. And like Gideon, it doesn't matter the size of the host against you. You just keep on fighting. You keep being faithful unto death. So that you will receive that crown of life. That eternal crown. And live forever with the king of kings. Perhaps it is some special service which is the test. He lets you have a soul or a work for him and you become absorbed with your work and you cannot hear his voice. You cannot watch his hand. You cannot be adjustable to his will. And then God says, go home. Drink all you want to. Sleep on now and take a rest. The opportunity is past. 
Well, Gideon put his trust in God. For God sees as men do not see. I'm sure there were people that day thinking, Gideon, are you crazy? We're outnumbered four to one by the Midianites, and you're sending this part of our army away, and then another part, there's just 300, we're going to be massacred. Yet what happened? In the biblical account, God gave them the victory. Their enemy was so frightened, they turned upon each other and started slaughtering each other. It was an incredible victory. And the land of Israel was set free, not by our might, but by the cunning, by the plan of Almighty God. You see, these men in Israel knew that there was no way that their might had defeated the enemy. It was God who had defeated the enemy. And those men who had been involved in it, how could they not see what God had done? Those who had left, how could they not see what God had done? How could they not see and then go home and destroy the altars of the false gods that they had adopted from the Canaanites? But oh, how the days are telling. Oh, how God is testing. Oh, how unconsciously to ourselves, each of us has been weighed in the balance. God helps us to be watchful, to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as the wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. We learn a lot from the life of Gideon. Most of all, we learn that humble obedience yields positive results. Not just for ourselves, but from those around us. Saul of Tarsus, in humble obedience, obeyed the command to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins in Acts twenty-two sixteen. And now, why tarriest thou? To tarry means to wait. Why wait? Why are you waiting? Now is the time. Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. His sins were not forgiven until they were washed away in the waters of baptism, which is fully um, full immersion as a sign of our burial and resurrection with Christ. In Acts 2, 38, the Apostle Peter, using the keys of the kingdom given to him by Christ, opened up the kingdom for business. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, everybody within hearing distance, be they Jew or Gentile. The old things are passed away. The king is reigning in heaven. The kingdom is here. The law of Christ is in effect, and all are subject to the law of Christ. Galatians 3.27 puts it so well. When the Apostle Paul said, He that believeth and is baptized. My mind has gone blank. I know this verse off by heart. Oh, Galatians 3.27. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3.27. I might kick myself about this later. It's all that barbecue, I'm telling you. Galatians 3.27. Oh, I know. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you have not been baptized into Christ, you have not put him on. Which means you're not a Christian if you haven't been baptized. 
And what is baptism? I tell you what it's not. It is not a sprinkling of the hands. It's not being splashed across the face with a cup of water. It's not being christened as a baby. For a baby is without sin and incapable of making any decisions. It has been buried in the water as a sign of our obedience to Christ. And only when we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins can we be forgiven of those sins. Let's make that very clear. When God gives instructions, we follow them. Those are the ones that are binding. Not the will of man or what is convenient, but the things that God has commanded. Like Gideon, let us trust in him. Let us face the foe. Let us know that the Lord is fighting for us. And the same God that strengthened the sword arm of Gideon strengthens our sword arm when we lift up the greatest sword of all, the word of God. The one that that pierces the heart, dividing it asunder, showing us what is right and what is wrong. This sword is the sword of life, raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Let us read it. Let us apply it to our lives in its fullness, leaving nothing out. And then we will find true peace. And there we will find true victory. So if you're not a Christian tonight, I ask that you follow the example of all those heroes of the Bible who humbly put their faith in God and found victory eternal. Thank you for your attention.